Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Wozbiz. We kick off the afternoon as usual with uh, the call. It's uh, the 16th of August. We go through 10 stocks suggested by you. I put them uh, to our expert panel. We do it all in and out. Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool joins us today. Also, Howard Coleman from Team Invest. Afternoon. You two, good to see you. Gosh, you have a good yeah, good. Um, Scott, first up to you, sort of a sense of earnings season, how it's going at the moment? Mate, about what I thought, quite honestly, a reasonably upbeat earnings season, many companies delivering at or above expectations because the economy has been pretty good. The, the real watch out is it is most earnings season, but I think particularly now where it feels like we've kind of climbed the mountain and maybe coming down the other side is the outlook statements. They've been softer, I think, than perhaps many had hoped. I'm not, again, super surprised, but it kind of reminds us that June 30 was not particularly a, a pivotal moment in and of itself, but the rate rises started in May. So to whatever yeah. extent we're seeing consumers come off, they're coming off now, and that's in the kind of the current trading and outlook rather than in historical financials. So on one hand, most companies had a really, really good 22 in terms of sales and profit growth. Um, a lot of businesses are then saying, yeah, but look, and this is Macquarie, this is a Commonwealth Bank, um, even JB Hi-Fi. They're saying, look, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll see how we go. Um, I think that's probably a story of, of what's happening. Yeah. We know consumer confidence is down, but business confidence remains high. Um, so yeah, it feels like we're in the eye of the storm, I have to say. Yeah, how, would, how are you seeing the numbers? Yeah, I mean, it's early still. I mean, this is the most uh, useful time of the year because we get information from our companies instead of watching the wiggles of their graphs going up, share price graphs going up or down. Um, and I'm with Scott. Uh, I, I, you know, reports have generally been better than expected, I think. Outlook statements, not all that positive. But in the end, if we do go into a really tough part of the economy, which I'm certainly not predicting, but if that does happen, what that tends to do is it sorts out the weak companies from the strong. Because in every sector, the weakest companies struggle, many of them go under, and the strong companies pick up their market share, have better margins because they have fewer competitors, and they go from strength to strength. So if you're invested in the right sort of business, uh, you businesses, you probably like it that the economy is going to have a bit of a downturn. Um, but if you're invested in weak companies, that's a terrible idea for you because many of your companies yep. will probably yep. do poorly. Yep, no, really good point. Um, let's get into uh, the stocks we're going to cover this half hour. Uh, Data 3, GUD Holdings, Bega, Blue Scope Steel and My State. Um, thought, stock of the day, thought we'd take a look at uh, Life360 is upgrading guidance for subscription revenue growth and narrowed the range of for revenue and adjusted earnings to a second uh, half loss of between 3 and $6 million. And net subscribe 
subscribers in Q2 up 111,000, second highest ever quarter. Monthly revenue up 65%. Uh, it now expects to be hit uh, to hit consistently positive earnings and operating cash flow by late calendar 2023. The chief executive Chris Hulls uh, calls it a value growth tech company. Let's see what if you look at many of the companies that led the sell-off in tech. They were spending double the revenue to expenses. I think we're about maybe 20% over or something in that range. So it's very easy for us to just to turn a few knobs and make the company profitable. That is the underpinnings of our confidence that now that we've gone through this heavy investment period, it won't be that difficult for us because we were never one of the companies that had an upside down uh, cost structure. Our margins have been high. The vast majority of our growth is organic. We're not overly reliant on marketing to grow. Uh, in fact, in the depths of COVID, we turned off all marketing and still grew MAU and revenue. So it's really up to us when we make that shift. Um, I'm a very big believer in our vision. I think we have a ton of room to grow, which is why we do continue to make heavier investments. Uh, but yeah, an interesting result. Tech company, of course, Life360. They uh, provide applications so you can review family members on a map, basically track your kids and communicate with each other uh, and receive alerts. Uh, Scott, what did you think of the Life360 result? Yeah, Kosh, I thought it was a pretty good result given what the company is trying to do. I think it's it's one of those situations where you say, okay, you know, is it necessarily the company you want it to invest in? Maybe, maybe not. Is it the strategy you'd like to follow or the business you'd like to invest in? Maybe or maybe not. But if we start with simply, is it doing what it's said it's trying to do? Yeah, I think pretty much. Um, I do think it's worth talking about the fact you mentioned consistently earnings positive and operating cash flow positive. That's fine, but operating cash flow is at the very top of the cash flow statement, not at the bottom. Uh, That suggests to me that they're still going to bleed some cash. And that's, I think, the market's biggest concern. You mentioned value growth tech company. That pretty much covers all of the the hot (laughs) buttons. And the the real challenge over the past, maybe, well, until about two months ago, for the previous six or eight months was, what if rates go up further? What if these companies can't get cash? What if they simply run out of money and, and have to find either something else or simply go to administration? That's been the big concern. And that's the story of that exact share price graph we're seeing right there. That, that peak was the height of dot-com tech growth. Everything's great. The depth, the, the, the trough there was, what if rates are terrible? What if everything goes badly? And I think you're seeing both irrational exuberance and irrational pessimism, quite honestly. It does seem like this is a business with the right trajectory. If you need to get to cash flow positive to make sure you can keep the lights on, it does seem like they're going to get there. Um, it's not a business I love particularly. Um, you mentioned Track the Kids. It's, uh, that's kind of one way to say it. Big Brother's the other way, and I'm sure the company would disagree <laughs> with that that's a suggestion, but that's where we find ourselves. Look, they, they're, doing, they're doing a pretty good job. They're getting, they're getting traction. All the metrics they're trying to talk to us about are the right ones for a growing tech business. A little bit too spicy for me, but... Um, if you're in yep. it for the right reasons, if you're in it for that sort of long-term story, you know it's higher risk. The metrics look pretty good. So hard to hard to really criticize the company for what it's doing. As an investment, the challenge is, do you want to take on that level of risk and that cash flow uncertainty? Not yet for me, but I can see why people might want to, and I wouldn't criticize them for doing so. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. We had Family Zone, uh, similar uh, yes. company, uh, uh, the other day with a with a similar verdict from the panel to you there, Scott. Um, uh, Howard, what do you think of uh, Life Three Hundred and Sixty? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the the problem with companies that don't make a profit but are going to make a profit in the future is only about one in forty of them ever reach that future. The other thirty nine in forty, on average, historically on stock markets, never get there. 
So what you're really saying is, do I think this will be the one in 40 that actually gets there, in which case it's probably a very good investment, or is this going to be the other 39 in 40 that doesn't get there? And we in Team Investor believe in investing in things with much higher likelihood of being wealth winners than that. So Team Invest members would show no interest in this company whatsoever. But, you know, there may be some people out there who prepare to take on the risk or who have enough belief in it that they believe it'll get there. The one scary thing that he said, to, which he thought was a positive, I thought was scary, where he said during COVID, they switched off all their marketing and still increased subscribers. But the point is they still made a loss because during COVID, they made a loss the same as they made every other year. So uh, uh, to me, it's an unproven business model, but it looks a bit better than some of the other unproven business models that are floating around at the moment. Okay. All right. Uh, let's get into the stocks that you want us to uh, uh, to have a view on. Annie Howard wants a view on Data3, the uh, uh, information technology business solutions provider company. Uh, what do you think of Data3? You asking me? Uh, yes, Howard. Yep. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, I obviously must like it enormously because I've owned it for about uh, 14 or 15 years, I think. Wow. Um, certainly more than 10. And um, I paid somewhere around about 60 cents a share. So I'm obviously grinning from ear to ear uh, about the current share price. And I've also had very nice dividends along the way. The point with this company is that has incredibly high return on equity, about 45%, no debt. Uh, and as a result, uh, it can pay out very close to 100% of its profits as dividends every year and still afford to grow. So you get a really good fat dividend. Almost all of the profits are paid out as dividends. And over the more than 10 years I've owned it, the share price has appreciated about 10 times roughly. Um, will that continue? See no reason why it shouldn't. They've got more and more recurring earnings. Um, uh, every time you uh, uh, use your Microsoft 360 in Australia, there's a chance that they're getting a tiny little ticket clip out of that. They put in large numbers of computers to government departments and uh, banks and so on. And they get uh, a tiny little margin on that, but they only buy the stuff after they've got a firm order. And then they get all the software each time it's renewed, they get a tiny little bit of commission on it. So uh, very, very good business. It's been around a very long time. And uh, I'm a very happy shareholder. So uh, a little bit expensive at the moment. I mean, you've been able to buy it generally at a PE significantly lower than the current. It's oh. And most years you could get it uh, at some point in the year in a PE in the low teens or even a little bit lower than that. So expensive at the moment, but great business. Okay. So would you wait for a pullback or? Yeah, yeah most definitely. Money. I mean, right. if the share price comes down significantly, uh, you know, $5.50 or something, uh, I'm sure there'd be plenty of Team Invest members who'd say, yippee, and buy some more. Okay. Uh, Scott, David, three. Yeah, I think Howard's done a really nice job, Koshi, of under underlining the business. Obviously, he knows it very, very well. 
Um, I share his concerns about the price and probably more than he does, maybe because I simply don't know the business quite so well. Um, but at 39-odd times, earnings just too expensive for me. Um, it does not, notwithstanding everything he said about the quality of the business itself, I am a little bit mindful of the quality of earnings. Should we go into an economic downturn? Um, again, uh, the economics of the business are very, very good, but if simply demand falls away, then of course, earnings fall away as well. That and a high price, at least on a, on a PE basis, does give me pause for concern at the current share price. Um, the great opportunity to buy it in the last little while, super volatile share price. Uh, I don't do predictions, but at a meaningfully lower share price, if we see that chart continue, for example, um, there might be a great time, as, as Howard says, to, to happily uh, snap up some shares, uh, but not one for me at this current price. I wouldn't sell it. I think it's, as Howard said, it's been a remarkable business performer, and you really want to be very, very careful, very reluctant to sell high-performing businesses because they have a tendency in a way of making past high share prices look okay in hindsight, uh, but I wouldn't be buying the shares today. Okay. Uh, let's go from uh, from tech to uh, to automobiles to cars. Uh, Scott <laughs> yeah. Thomas, Thomas wants a view on GUD, the the big car parts um, distributor or manufacturer, Ryko, Narva, um, of course the GUD spark plugs and fuel pumps mm-hmm. and all the like. What do you think of GUD? Mate, you've done a great job of, of summarising the business. This is a really real for, for a relatively simple industrial business. A really messy set of financials and frankly a really messy history as well right. and for those who like to maybe not as much as to invest potentially but I do like to look at history and try and get some guides to what the future might look like and you look back and say I don't know even the most recent set of results that was out very very recently earlier this month um, there's puts and takes and underlying EBITDAs and something's up and something's down this is an incredibly messy business to try and analyze um, and I will say for what it's worth even though Sometimes it's worth really getting your teeth into and try and pull these pieces apart because there can be hidden value in messy businesses if you can find either a one-off issue or maybe some underlying hidden value maybe that's not showing through. It can be a great investment, but really, really hard to analyze. Um, that being said, P of 13 times makes it very interesting. And so you kind of think, well, is it worth taking the time, effort, and trouble to get through? As you say, pumps, automobile products, all that kind of stuff. Um, <sighs> Honestly, the numbers are just too, um, I won't say unreliable, I mean unreliable in the sense of management not being reliable, but the numbers, the history, and frankly what we're seeing in those financials, I don't think you can reasonably draw an easy conclusion from that. You could by Mm. now make a fortune, you could buy now and lose money, um, just simply because it's very, very hard to really know on an underlying basis. Every management team will tell you how good the future is going to be because they're desperately trying to make it that way. Some will succeed, some won't. It's just really hard to tell with GUD. It's absolutely one to keep an eye on. But even then, even if even if and when it looks attractive, there have been so many times in the past when it seems like it's turning a new corner. Then the next year you see profits fall away again. Then it recovers. Really, really hard to know when to buy. I do worry this might be a value trap for investors who are looking at this one. As I said, at 13 times earnings, profits have been so dramatically all over the place. The other thing quickly too, at 13 times earnings, on what has been a historically high level of earnings, if the business is cyclical, yeah, it looks cheap, but paying a low multiple of a cyclically high level of earnings right. is usually a bad idea. So just okay. be very careful. Paying a low multiple of low earnings is great, but looking at that history, I wouldn't be buying GUD today. Um, what about you, Howard? Yeah, I mean, I'm with Scott. I think Scott's uh, given a pretty good summary there of the reasons why you'd want to be wary. And in fact, an extra thing on it, you know, it, it was on a, a, a price of $8.94 yesterday at the close, and exactly 10 years ago, 
its high for the year was $8.94. Okay. Now, in that time, we've had inflation of about 40% over that 10 years. So in actual fact, in real terms, you're 40% worse off owning this than you were 10 years ago. And, um, you know, it's it's sort of bounced around. It, it buys businesses, then it sells businesses, then it buys other businesses, sells other businesses. It is difficult to understand. So it hasn't been a capital killer, but it's really hard to see how this is has ever proven a wealth winner, um, got a reasonably good payout ratio, so it pays a reasonable dividend, but that's about all. I'm with Scott. Um, I, I wouldn't be considering buying this. It wouldn't pass our filters in Team Invest, um, simply because it just never seems to string several good years uh, put together heading in the right direction. Yeah, and had had a, had a big drop in share prices. Scott was saying from its guidance only a month or so, month or so ago. That's how how messy the market sees it. Um, Ellen wants a view, Howard, on Bega, the uh, the big dairy company, but uh, also owns Iconic uh, Vegemite as well. Um, sort of employs about five hundred staff in the Bega Valley. One of our oldest dairy companies. Um, how? what do you think of Bega? Yeah, well, I always think, thank goodness for these dairy companies and agricultural companies in general, because without them, we'd be back to the way things were in the Middle Ages, when, uh, you know, every year you worried about whether you'd have enough food to survive till the following year, and lots of people would starve to death. So, you know, it's wonderful that we have these agricultural companies that prevent us from starving and make sure there's food on the shelf 12 months of the year. But that doesn't necessarily make them good investments. And commodity companies, which is what uh, they are basically, um, really struggle. And you've got two big gorillas, or three nowadays, I suppose, if you include Aldi. You've got Woolworths, Coles and, and Aldi. Um, who are going to make sure that no individual producer of anything is going to make particularly high margins, because if they do, they'll squeeze them down a little bit in the interests of the consumers in keeping things cheap. And they're not going to get too much flack from governments, because governments would also rather consumers were happy in that things were kept reasonably cheap. So it's very hard ever to see a agricultural-related company, uh, even though they're mainly manufacturing, um, as being a, a potential wealth winner, and they never are. So uh, Team Invest members would say, nah, we love what they do, we eat their products, um, we hope they continue to do so and produce them, but I wouldn't put my money in them. Uh, what about you, um, Scott? Well, how do you see bigger? Yeah, pretty close to Howard's view. We'll, we'll try and find something to disagree about later in the program, Koshi. But uh, look, so I worked for Woolies back in the day, and there was a time when when the Woolies New South Wales decided to teach Coke a lesson by basically contracting all of its products into one section of shelving, really tiny section of shelving, just to prove that they can, and they did. And, and that's kind of Howard's point, you know, in, in a really practical example of, hey, we are the the, the big gorilla, to use Howard's term. Uh, we will call the shots. Thank you very much. Yes, Coke is important. Yes, Vegemite is important. Yes, bigger cheese or peanut butter is important. But, <laughs> we, you know, you, you will play in our stores by our rules and we'll play our game. Thank you very much. And again, as Howard said, there's not likely to be a lot of pushback every now and again. Uh, we see some publicity about small producers getting pushed around. And frankly, we probably should do more to help them uh, to make sure we do have a viable industry. But that's not the, the, the role or the, or the 
the remit of this program or investors as a rule. Our question is, do you think this is a market-beating investment? I would say it doesn't look too expensive based on the most recent set of results. But those results, similarly to, we talked about GED, bigger, not quite so volatile, but not miles off either. If they can sustain this level of profitability, and again, remember, that they don't have to necessarily you know, shoot the lights out growth-wise. They, they've been consolidating, they've been acquiring. They've become actually quite large, bigger. I think it's a smart move to try and combat the market power of the big supermarkets. You want to be able to have better negotiating power, build some more scale, fractionalize your costs. So they're pursuing exactly the right strategy if you're going to be in this space. Is it enough to give them market-leading performance? I'm going to say I'm kind of on the fence. Uh, we know Twiggy, of course, took a, took a decent chunk of Vega. Um, there's a very reasonable chance they can they can eke out a, a decent return at a cheap enough multiple. You might get market beating or might maybe market matching returns. There's a couple of ifs there, though. And I think if you're saying, you know, can we find businesses we have a high degree of confidence are market beating? I don't think, unfortunately, as Howard said, I'd love to say yes, because we all want to get behind Australian manufacturing. But very hard to see without meaningful um, uh, pricing power with those big supermarkets, how big are ends up making more than a decent quid. Um, they're going to find it very tough to put price increases through in the current environment. Uh, Woolies and Coles trying to desperately keep their prices down. So very, very tough being a supermarket supplier until the situation looks like it might be better for Bega. And I don't know that it ever will. Uh, I'd be giving this one a miss too. Okay. All right. Uh, Pat wants your view, Scott, on uh, you're talking about high-end Australian manufacturing. <laughs> Blue Scope Steel, yes. bumper yeah. result yesterday, best ever, $2.8 billion after tax, strong demand from the Australian mm. and United States building and construction industry where they're selling their products. Um, mm. Our larger steel maker, good result. Yeah, really, really great result, Koshin. Again, you know, in terms of in terms of Team Australia and kind of cheering on our businesses, <laughs> you, you know, a great result. Really good to see. Frankly, a really impressive result, mostly because steel is a really tough industry. I was going to say bloody tough. I'll say really tough instead. Um, <laughs> it's a very, very tough area to try and make a dough. It make you dough. It's a, a relatively commoditized industry. Blue Scope has done a really good job of finding a way to kind of brand their products, make some relatively niche in the context of the global steel industry products with a little bit of pricing power, a little bit of margin, um, and just a little bit is enough in this industry where everything else is commoditized. So huge props to what to the, the business for what they've done strategically. They've, they've achieved really nicely. I do think though, and I'm gonna, here comes the wet blanket thing. Think about where we are right now. You just talked about the huge demand from home building in the US and Australia. We're going to go into tougher economic times. Um, I'm kind of with Howard. I'm, I'm probably a little bit more prepared to say I think we will have some degree of slowing of the economy. Do we end up with the R word recession? I don't know. But the RBA is deliberately, as is the US Fed, trying to slow, trying to cool these economies. They want to take demand out of the system. Where does that show up? Probably in home building, probably in construction. On top of that, so there's the volume story. On top of that, a lot of what Blue Scope's numbers, as much as they did a really good job operationally, they got some really nice pricing through. And that's something you very rarely can repeat in a commoditized industry. Now, again, it's not the absolute commodity steel production, but all steel to some or lesser degree is going to be commoditized to some some sense. So in that context, you got you know cyclically high volumes, probably, cyclically high prices, probably. And then if you forecast that forward and say, okay, let's say you own this for the next three, five, seven years, and I'm a long-term investor, so that's kind of my holding period of what I'm looking for. Do I think there's going to be, you know, times of higher prices, higher volumes consistently over that period? 
Probably not. Right. Are there going to be lower prices? Probably lower volumes on average? Probably. Again, they might buy something. So I'm not talking about acquisitions here. I'm talking about the organic business we have today. Um, very hard to see this might not be towards the top or at the peak of, of the cycle. Again, without doing predictions, it's just more likely, more probabilistic that there are lower results in future rather than higher. That being said, the price is not particularly expensive. Um, uh, these numbers here, it says 3.4 times earnings. It's clear that's you know not a reasonable number, but th there is some allowance from the market of exactly what I've just talked about. Uh, there's just a very volatile share price on the back of that. I don't, I, you know, I'd love to say yes. Um, the results are really, really good. If you own the shares, congratulations, you've done really well. Sometimes there's time to take money off the table in cyclical industries. I think I'd be doing that now for Bluescope. Okay. All right. Um, Howard, is it, is it as good yeah, as it gets for Bluescope? Well, yeah, uh, Scott summarised it well. I'll add just one extra thing that adds further to the wet blanket, and that is that China is by miles the largest steel producer in the world. Mm. And most of that steel in China is used in the construction industry. Now, their construction industry is in dire straits at the moment. Will they fix it? I don't know. I don't know enough about it. But it certainly looks like they're going to struggle to fix it. Now, uh, if that's the case... All that steel that's being produced in China uh, and used in China is going to be available for export. And that is going to push down the margins on steel producers everywhere in the world. If they aren't consuming it all in China and they're still running their factories, it's going to push down the prices because supply will increase dramatically. So, uh, you know, it, it, again, it's, it's a business that's cyclical. It's a commodity type business. Um, team Invest members wouldn't get enthusiastic about it, but congratulations to the management. They've done an absolutely fabulous job in a tough industry in the last few years. Yep, yep, here, here. Here, here. Um, now, Denise wants a view, Howard, on my state. This is uh, sort of Tasmania's state uh, bank, isn't it? Uh, not only just a bank, uh, it's got trustee services and, and funds management. Um, what do you think of my state? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the trouble with banks is you've got to look at their return on equity and see how they're doing on, in that uh, area. And its return on equity has now dropped to 7.4%. Now, that's significantly lower than the big four banks. Now, with interest rates rising, um, banks will do well in the one way in that they uh, put up the interest rates before they put up the deposit rates because if people have got a five-year term deposit, they don't have to worry about the rates on that increasing for a long time. Um, but the problem is bad debts go up too. Um, and it's hard to see a good case to buy a bank that's got a return on equity of 7.4% when you can buy other banks that have got returns on equity of more than 10%. Right. So, uh, you know, if you're looking for only 20, 25 companies in your portfolio, it'd be a tough ask to say, this would be one of the 20 I would really like uh, in my portfolio. Uh, and, you know, it's on a P of about 15, which doesn't make it cheap. Banks are usually... A, it's a good time to buy them when their P's are 10 or less and not a good time to buy them when they're anything significantly above 10. So for a number of reasons, uh, not one that we'd be enthused about. Okay. Scott, what about you? Enthused about my state? Uh, no. Yes, for an income portfolio, uh, not for a portfolio of stocks you're trying to beat the market with, kind of for the reasons that Howard's outlined. Um, my state's financials are spectacularly solid and have grown upwards nicely. Just a really steady state. This is not going to blow the doors off 
Um, but the numbers have been really, really strong and just consistently day after day, step after step, just year after year, delivering slightly increasing profits next year, year after year after year after that. That's exactly the sort of thing you'd want, particularly if you're exposed to the big four banks, for example, you want something a bit different or you're looking for some other financial exposure. My state has got concentration in Tassie and Queensland. So in one sense, it's actually riskier because it is more concentrated in a couple of states rather than being maybe a national business. Um, but I've got to say, I do like the way they're running that business. They've done a really, really nice job over time. Those earnings are stepping higher every year very, very nicely. Now, again, been a long time, COVID aside, since we had a, a normal recession, we may be headed for one or at least a normal downturn or a cooling of growth if we're very, very lucky. Um, so there are questions about how well all of the banks, including my state, will have provisioned for bad debts, the sort of loan standards. Um, again, not my state in particular, but the banking sector across the board. And again, Howard's point is, is absolutely valid. It's not a particularly cheap price. But if I was going to put together an income portfolio, my state would be one I'd very seriously mm. consider. Now, I think they've done a really, really nice job. Very, very simple business. And I've got to say in banking, for my, to my view, the simpler the better if you're an income investor. We know what happened, of course, when the US banks got a little bit too carried away. Australia's banks don't have anywhere near that sort of exposure of taking those sort of risks. But even though you said that there are bit, different bits of the business, Koshi, it is fundamentally a retail and business bank in a very plain vanilla sense. And I just, I like that from a an analytical perspective, if you're looking for an income uh, portfolio position, I think my stats are a really, really good one. So no, I don't think it's going to beat the market. I wouldn't buy it for that reason. But if you're saying, hey, I want an income portfolio, I want some fully frank dividends, thank you very much, a half decent yield, my state would be one I would absolutely look to include in that portfolio. Okay. All right, let's recap the uh, the first five stocks. Stock of the day, uh, Life360, a no from both Howard and Scott. Uh, Data3, uh, good company. Howard's had it a long time, uh, been a long-time investor, bit high at the moment. If it got down to around that 550 level, he'd start to look interested. It's a hold from uh, Scott, GUD uh, and Bigger, a no. Uh, no for Blue Scope Steel. Uh, Scott saying if you're a shareholder in it, maybe it's as good as you get. Look at taking some profits on it. Uh, and my state, a no from both. But Scott saying if you're an income investor, it might be worth looking at for an income producing portfolio. Uh, here on the call, we've been tracking our own high conviction fantasy fund as picked by our investment committee. The latest committee meeting is uh, uh, on the platform for you to watch, ausbiz.com. So let's check in with the portfolio in the August uh, meeting heading into August. Uh, the committee um, got out of Ordinate and took their profits um, and uh, added Oz Minerals. They also upped their stake in Woodside. And uh, since the fund has been going on the 1st of March, uh, returns just under 4%. At CMC, we've been in the game for a while. And although a lot of things have changed, our mentality hasn't. We aim to give experienced traders the best trading experience, like our expert platform with its second-to-none trading tools. Plus, our pricing is completely transparent. That's why people who've been trading for a long time stay with us for a long time. So if you're serious about trading, switch to the market leader trusted for over 30 years. Trade CFDs your way at cmcmarkets.com. You don't own underlying assets. Consider relevant PDS and TMD or information memorandum for CMC Pro accounts at our website. Uh, let's get into uh, the next five stocks and we'll be looking at 
Technology One, Monash IVF, uh, BKI Investment Company, Accent Group, and also Blackmores. Uh, Sarah wants a view, uh, Howard, on Technology One, the big uh, server software as a service um, uh, software company uh, targeting the uh, big end of town in terms of corporates and governments and universities and the like. It's it's been a favourite of uh, of team investment uh, team invest members for a couple of years now, has it? Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, they mainly target uh, municipalities, so small right. governments and education institutions. Um, brilliant business. It's been extraordinarily well run. It's another one like Data Three that I've owned for much more than a decade. And I've done exceptionally well out of it. In fact, I actually know the exact price I first paid for it because I paid exactly $1. So it's a number you remember. Then I thought I'd be clever and I'd buy some more at 98 cents so that I could average out at 99 cents. And of course, it never dropped below a dollar. So my next lot, I paid more than the dollar I'd paid originally. That came from trying to be too smart. Um, But I've done extraordinarily well out of it. And uh, it is a fabulous business, but at the moment it's on a P of over 50. So, you know, certainly if you say to me, should it be one of the companies you'd love to own in your portfolio if you're a long-term investor like me, I'd say absolutely, definitely. And I'd say about 550 team invest members, probably 400 or 450 or 500 of them would own Technology One. And the only ones who don't own it probably are the ones who've joined recently and haven't yet had a chance to buy it at a reasonable PE. Now, it's PE every year has come down at some stage to 30 or less. In fact, most years it's come down to somewhere more like 20. It's currently on 50. So love the business. Definitely wouldn't be adding to it at this price. I'm certainly not selling what I've got. Um, It's a remarkable business, and I bet you it'll be still a wealth winner for many years to come but you need to wait and every year at some stage there's some bad news that causes a share price to come down in fact i'm just having a quick look here um not that long ago it got down to nine dollars 54 so you know you could have bought it then in the high nines it's now uh you know more like uh 12 something so uh, at nine dollars something it's something you'd smile at and buy at $12, something you look at it and say, great business, but I'll pass. So under 10 bucks. Yeah, under 10 bucks. Okay, Scott? Yeah, really like Technology One. Uh, For all the reasons you've outlined and Howard's mentioned as well, Um, software as a service, great recurring revenue business, super sticky customers, government, education, health. Uh, Not only are they sticky in terms of they're unlikely to want to move away from Technology One, the pain of replacing these sort of systems is just not worth it uh, unless someone gives you a really, really stupidly cheap price. And even then, it's going to take years, lots of training, lots of money. Once you're in there, you're kind of in there. Also, too, these businesses are not, these organisations, including government, as you say, they're not likely to suffer if we have mm. recessions or, or economic slowdowns. So you've got a really, really nice combination of businesses here. And that's, I think, a really good opportunity for investors who want something really solid. The growth of this one, so I mentioned um, uh, I mentioned the growth of my state. The growth of technology one is even more staircase. If you honestly drew a straight line through it, if I drew this and said, here's some numbers, you'd be like, okay, well, you've given me you know, pretend numbers. Let's use real ones now because they are wow. so consistently strong, just mm. higher and higher and higher and higher. Um, really, really good. Returns and equity have also improved meaningfully after sort of slowly declining from 2012 to about 2018. They've jumped back up and stayed nice and high. So uh, there is nothing to dislike about this business whatsoever. I'm slightly more prepared than Howard to pay up for this one 
it would be a buy for me. Um, you won't want to pay too much more than the current price, quite right. honestly. But it is one of those companies that, and again, maybe you get a chance to buy even more at a lower price if you get that opportunity. I'm mindful of Howard's point about missing out, trying to get a better price and missing out on the growth that comes from it. So if you get a better price, then by all means, you know, I was going to say thin your boots, do it responsibly in a yeah. diversified portfolio way, um, but go go fishing. But I, I'd happily buy some at the current price. Okay. I said not much more because it's going to be pretty hard to get a better return than this, um, you know, in terms of PEs and that kind of stuff. But, you know, particularly for those investors who are looking for cornerstone positions in super high quality businesses, um, this is one I think you want to be okay. absolutely lining up for. And if we do see some economic uh, challenges, if you've got other companies in your portfolio that are more exposed to the economy, you may be glad you've got something like Technology One in the back pocket. Mm. Yep, good advice. Um, now, Jason wants a view on Monash IVF, Scott, the uh, uh, reproductive services provider, uh, fertility treatments, obstetric uh, ultrasounds and the like. Mm. Um, I heard this described, and it did rock me a bit, as um, a junior CSL in the making. Now, I thought, oh, I think- whoa, that is a really big, <laughs> uh, big call. What do you think? If it was done by someone who owned the shares or maybe the company's management, Koshi, I, I'd suggest you <laughs> might know why they said that. Uh, I don't know who that was. I don't, I don't want to know because I don't want to libel anybody. Um, so here, so here, I, think that's a, I think that's a very, very big stretch. Yep. I really like the assistive reproduction space. I liked Virtus when it was taken private. Um, I like Monash. It's a really attractive space because the tailwinds for this industry are enormous. We know that more people are having more kids later. We're having more people have kids either... Uh, outside marriages, same-sex couples, all sorts of stuff where they're using that assisted reproductive technology. And the technology is improving, meaning Mm. those who couldn't have conceived naturally and couldn't conceive using the the then-current technology all of a sudden now can. Um, The tech is just, as as you would expect in biotechnology as well as tech around the rest of the market, just coming ahead in leaps and bounds. And so this is going to be a market that I think will continue to grow. Um, I said, we're living kids later, we want more kids, all that sort of stuff that, that life just throws in the way. The people freezing eggs, of course, to, to, to use later. Um, so much opportunity for assisted reproductive technology to help women who want to have kids. And so I think that's a really nice place to be. It feels good, but I actually think from a business perspective, there's real long-term potential for assisted reproductive technology. I liked Virtus a lot. I do like Monash. The challenge, I think, and, and why I'm a little bit cautious is, for all the things I just said, that hasn't necessarily come through in the numbers. Uh, we've seen a really lumpy business. Something you would expect would be pretty consistent, right? Year in, year out, you'd expect the same number of people roughly having kids. Uh, COVID notwithstanding, again, as always, we've said that so many times over the last few months. You'd expect that to be the case. A combination, I think, of it being a relatively small absolute number. We're talking hundreds or thousands of of uh, treatments here. Um, in a, in a, that, that's a reasonably volatile set of data just because it's so small. And also, I think, because there are other players in this in the space. Um, Primary was, was a player providing uh, cheaper reproductive technology. And again, there's always the risk that um, there's simply too much margin here for the, the existing players and others come and, come and take their, eat their lunch. So I like the business. I want to like the long-term story. I do like the long-term story in terms of the potential. I would like to see a bit more consistency from Monash before I jumped in. So I'm an absolute solid hold, hoping for a mm. meaningfully better price. Currently, fifth, uh, sorry, 18 times earnings, which is not expensive. It's not cheap. Um, so maybe a meaningfully better price would de-risk the investment somewhat or some sense that consistency of sales and earnings are returning. Uh, if you can see either or both of those, I'd definitely be buying this one, but I can't buy it at the moment. So mm. it's, a, it's a strong hold for me. I wouldn't sell it. Um, I think it's a long-term okay. potential winner. I just want to see a better opportunity. All right. 
Howard, Monash IVF? Yeah, funnily enough, you got the wrong Coleman in the household here because my wife has a PhD in early developmental embryology oh. and she was one of the <laughs> researchers in, in IVF um, when she was at Oxford. So um, uh, it, it's partly thanks to her that all of this happens today. But the problem with it from a business point of view is that, as Scott mentioned, the technology is improving dramatically. And because the technology is improving dramatically, the cost is going down dramatically. So companies like Monash have to have more and more and more clients to get the same amount of income, or patients, if you want to call them that, to get the same amount of income. Now, that's a tough business to run. It doesn't matter whether it's in health or whether it's in anything. Whatever you're in, if you've got to get more and more and more clients and you're making less and less and less money out of the clients that you're getting, it's a terrible, terrible business to run because you have to go faster and faster. It always reminds me of the little uh, animal, what are those kind of things that go around the week? Hamster, that's it. It's like a hamster having to run faster and faster and faster around the wheel. And its return on equity has been pretty disappointing the last two years, less than 10%, um, which is very different to the comparison that's being made with CSL. So, no, I certainly don't think it's... uh, an, an aspiring CSL, oh, it may be an aspiring CSL, but I don't think it'll ever be one right. uh, at all. Um, but it's not an industry that has the right dynamics long term. Yes, more and more customers, but no, paying cheaper and cheaper and cheaper prices. Okay. Uh, Howard, Richard wants a view on BKI Investment Company, the listed investment company. Never heard of it, actually. And then I looked it up at Brickworks Investments. I thought, oh, Brickworks, okay. Um, And uh, it is an investment company at the long end of town. Uh, Richard's saying it's been good for him, just wondering what it's looking like at the moment. I didn't notice I bought Ian Huntley's uh, business, research business, back in 2008. Uh, Ian Huntley, an old stager in the investment markets, one of the the first newsletter writers, wasn't he, Scott, years and years ago? Um, Really good bloke. Um, What do you think of BKI, BKI Investment? Um, yeah, uh, look, it's the same sort of reliable governance and board as you get in Sol Patterson and Brickworks. Yeah. So you know for sure they are really going to be looking after your money. Now, that's a very, very good sign in any fund manager type business, which is what this is. Very conservative. It tends to be very dividend focused rather than growth focused. So if you're investing in it, you're going to get nice dividends. Um, because they invest in companies that have high dividends, you're probably not going to get much growth because they're really not terribly interested in getting much growth. So their growth has been fractionally above inflation. They've averaged about 4% in gro- uh, 4% per year earnings per share growth when we had roughly 2.5% inflation in the same period. So that's okay. It's keeping you ahead of inflation and a nice dividend yield and they look after your money really well. Currently on a PE of about 12 and a half, which is not expensive. So uh, if you're looking for something conservative with very little growth, not going to turn into a wealth winner, but delivers nice income, and you don't want to have to pick the individual stocks for yourself, um, putting some money into BKI and letting them pick the stocks for you is not a bad idea. So I can't imagine our Team Invest members owning it because they like to run their own portfolios. But I'm quite sure that Team Invest members looking at this would say, 
well, a, reli a reliable bunch. And if I was purely looking for dividend income, I'd be very happy to put some money in there. Mm. Scott? Yeah, I like BKO as well. You both mentioned already the Solpats Brickworks connection. Uh, Tom Milner, who is on the board of uh, of Solpats, and of course Robert Milner's son, the executive chairman of Solpats, runs uh, Contact Asset Management, which is the manager of BKO Investments. Sorry, I had to get that through, but that's what it is. So um, it, it's it's very much got the Solpats DNA deep in the organisation. As Howard says, it does what it says on the tin. It's focused on income, 4.2% uh, yields number I've got here, fully frank, so it grows up to about 6%. Um, and you know you've got the you know some of the best people in the room looking over your, your shoulder. Uh, you mentioned Huntley's news there. I used to I used to subscribe to that one too, Koshi. Yep. So uh, definitely a, a blast from the past there. It's it's sort of the Bico's sort of business that yeah. Look, I don't love listed investment companies generally. Many just kind of shadow index and and charge you a fee for the privilege. This one's one that they're, they're taking a you know the usual suspects in the portfolio, but reasonably different allocations. For example, their largest position uh, on their last monthly numbers were nine point one percent position in Macquarie, for example. Right. Um, so you know they, they they've taken it. I mean they're all the usual suspects in the top. 20 or 30 holdings, you know them all. Um, but they're trying to uh, manage the portfolio to deliver that regular reliable income. They're kind of doing that, which is nice. Um, currently about 1.07 times book value. So again, to Howard's point, you could buy these things you know, you're for yourself in the same proportions and actually cost you less um, on a per share basis than buying BKI. But then BKI is doing the management for you. And if you want that sort of portfolio position, again, we talk about income stocks, you know, 4.2% fully frank yield. If you're putting together an income portfolio, you know, this should be one of the top dozen or so ideas right. I reckon you've probably got for all those reasons. Not only is it a really nice dividend yield, you've got professionals looking after who I think you can really trust and you're getting a diversified sort of, you know, portfolio position to start with. Uh, it's a nice combination of, of attributes to have. So do I think it's going to beat the market again? I don't think so at the current price, nor is it particularly cheap as an LIC because it's trading above its net tangible mm. assets. But again, a very, very reliable one. Okay. I'd happily put this in, a, in an income portfolio as well. Yeah, for conservative investors. All right, uh, yeah. Victor, Scott, what's a view on Accent Group, the uh, big sports and fashion footwear company? They own Athletes Foot, uh, Sketches, Hot DC, Platypus Shoes, uh, 420 stores uh, around Australia, like most retailers has been re really hammered in the last six months on the uh, prospect of a recession that some people have. What do you think of Accent? So this one's a tough one, Koshi. If you put the, the, the earnings charts of uh, my state, technology you want an accent together you would say these are three really solid growing businesses super reliable almost year in year out without fail earnings growth yep and you say well i guess the peers must be the same on those and as we've already talked about you've got my state at 15 you've got technology one at the best part of it was at 47 times and accent is under 11 times earnings mm. and you kind of think okay well what's going on now the answer in part is your point which is the market's worried about what comes next for accent is there a real you know some sort of economic cataclysm that that permanently hurts their earnings i don't think there is and i've got to say i think this is one of those situations i, I do like retail right now as a, an area to go shopping because oh. not, no pun intended if you if you think about 11 times current level of earning let's say earnings half let's just let's just for, for a year and a half so let's say you're buying 20 times next year's earnings okay that's not great and if shares fall further then maybe you could have got them cheaper so those things are possible but let's say the current level of earnings is actually sustainable once we get out of that downturn. Well, if you're buying a business that over the next four, five, six, seven years is going to trade on the, that average PE of 10-ish, even if for the next 18 months it's at 15 or 20 times earnings, 
that's a really, really attractive investment opportunity. Mm. As long as there's no fundamental ongoing damage to the business. Now, if it goes broke in the meantime, it's obviously too yep. expensive. If sales and profits fall and can never recover them, then obviously it's too expensive. But if you don't think there's anything structural, even if the worst case happens and profits do fall, I, I just I struggle mm. to see how you don't do okay. very well buying a business like Accent at less than 11 times earnings. All right, so would this be your, amongst your preferred retailers if you're saying you like that sector now? Oh, good question. Yeah, well, it, it is a buy for me, so yes. Uh, I, I, I Actually, I think there's a few, so let, let me quickly. Harvey Norman, I like. Adairs, I like and Adore Beauty, right. I like. So let, let's yeah. put Accent as, as the fourth of those. I, I own the first three. I don't own uh, Accent for what it's worth, so by definition, I should yeah. say I, I prefer the other three. Um, but they're all really, hmm. really inexpensive. You throw JB Hi-Fi in there after the last set of results. Again, I'm not saying that there won't be a downturn in retail sales or profitability. I'm not saying the share prices can't fall from here. Those things are all possible. Yeah. But if I owned those, would I do really well over the next five, seven years? I think absolutely. I'd be really, really surprised okay. if a basket of those retailers, including um, uh, Accent, don't do really, really well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Howard, what do you think? Yeah, I think Scott's explained it really well. And the extra thing that I would add in that, oh, by the way, I should say I do own Accent Group and I've owned it also for a very long time. Not quite as long as Dota 3 and Technology 1, but I think it's 10 years by now that I've owned Accent. Um, but uh, the extra thing is, of course, if we do get a major downturn, it's not going to be the Accent Groups of this world or the JB Hi-Fi's or the Harvey Normans who are going to go broke. It's going to be a lot of their competitors who are much weaker who go broke. So Accent's already announced that they're increasing their total number of stores by some incredibly large amount. I think it was about 150 over the next 12 to 18 months or something. Now, if lots of other little shoe shops that are not well managed mm. go under because there's a bit of a recession and people don't buy as many shoes, Accent isn't going to go under. Sure, their profits may drop a bit, as Scott pointed out. Share price may come down a bit, as Scott pointed out. But they will still be around afterwards, and there'll be empty shops that uh, shopping centres will be happy to rent out to Accent Group at rates that are cheaper than they would have been renting them before if there's a recession. Now, if there's no recession, that won't happen, but then there's nothing much that's going to go wrong with Accent Group if there's no recession. It'll carry on doing well. And if there is a recession, it will, for a short time, perhaps do poorly, but in the okay. long term, it will have fewer competitors and it'll be selling more of the shoes that get sold in Australia. So uh, I'm a very happy shareholder, and it's certainly not expensive, as Scott points out at the moment. It's pretty cheap. Okay. So a buy from uh, on Accent as well. Um, uh, just finally, we'll need to whip the, through this a bit, uh, gents. Howard, Mon wants a view on Blackmores, the uh, the big vitamin supplement business founded by Mark, um, Marcus Blackmore or his dad, Maurice Blackmore, in 1931. Just been going a long time, has it? Listed in yeah. 85. Yeah, and it's been a, a, a good business all that time. The, the, the one worry, in fact, there are two worries about Blackmores today compared to what they have been in the past. Number one, they've gone into manufacturing as well. So they're no longer just a marketing business. Right. Uh, they're now a manufacturing and marketing business, and that's very, very different. Manufacturers are usually poor marketers. Marketers are usually poor manufacturers. So that's a worry. Excellent CEO in Alistair Symington. But there's friction on the board. Marcus is the biggest single shareholder, and the chair, uh, who's relatively new to the company, believes she knows far more than Marcus does about how the business should be run. 
and has been uh, in dispute with him about all sorts of things about who should be on the board and how the company should be run. Now, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know all the details. Obviously, neither of them are going to tell me the details. But I would say if the biggest shareholder owns 20% of the company, whose father founded the company and who ran the company, uh, has some opinions on the way it should be run, the chances are he's right. And, uh, you know, it was a successful business all those years. Now, I believe he hasn't sold any of his shares, so he's obviously not completely uh, angry that he can't cope with what's being done. But I would think she'd be a very intelligent chair if she decided to engage more with him and try to... Uh, listen more to what he said and, and, and move in the direction of his opinions. Okay, all right. So not when there's uh, a dispute between the chair chair and one of the uh, the biggest shareholders. Scott, do you agree? Gosh, you get my disclosures out of the way. I used to work at Blackmores. I own shares in Blackmores, and I do think it's a buy, but it is one for the true believers. Right. Um, I think Howard's absolutely right. The fact they're ignoring Marcus Blackmore, I think, is ridiculous. Um, I don't mind saying that outright. Uh, the manufacturing, I really dislike. I think the business has gone off the rails to some degree in the past. Mm. Maybe the new CEO can bring it back on board. So he's relatively new to the job, Alistair Symington. Um, I'll give him a bit of rope and, and give him the chance to do so. If they can't do it and they won't bring Marcus mm. back inside the tent, I don't know for how much longer I would hold those shares. I should say, too, the earnings are due out on Thursday. So I, if, if I was looking to potentially buy Blackmore shares, I think I'd probably hold my horses for a couple of days and have a look then. It is okay. currently a buy, as I said. I think it's relatively inexpensive based on the long-term potential for the business. Whether it can achieve that potential, that's the big question mark for investors. Okay, bit of a spec buy there to finish on. Howard uh, uh, Coleman from Team Invest, thank you so much. Great to have you aboard, Scott Phillips. Always Fishing. great from The Motley Fool. Good to see you. Thanks, guys. Uh, let's uh, recap the uh, the final five stocks. Uh, Technology one, a um, uh, a hold uh, from Howard. If it gets under ten dollars, he'd uh, be looking at it. Uh, it's a buy from um, uh, from Scott. Good company, likes it. Monash IVF, a hold from Scott, a no from uh, Howard. Uh, BKI Investment, a yes from both for very conservative, income oriented investors who want to invest in. A a listed investment company rather than make decisions themselves. Accent a buy from both. Uh, Black Balls a no because of the, the feuding from uh, from Howard at the moment. Uh, Scott agrees with that, but if they can sort themselves out, then it could be a speculative buy from, uh, from Scott at The Motley Fool. Uh, that's it for the call for today. Um, if you have any stocks you'd like me to put to our expert panels, put them in an email the call at ausbiz.com.au or tweet us using the at TV handle and just a reminder all the stocks in the calls portfolio are at ausbiz.co forward slash portfolio we'll see you at same time tomorrow for another edition of the call see you then This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.